Well, we are going to be in Titus chapter 1, wrapping up this first chapter uh, this morning. We uh, are in a series through Titus called Reformation or Reformation. And we were talking about the need for a reformation in the church and our families and the community. And uh, how critical that is, that we have a reformation, that we see a, a new foundation for the family, which is going to impact the church, which ultimately will impact the world. And so if we, if we think that the greatest need for our community, our country, our world is revival, it's not. It's not. The greatest need is a reformation or revival in the church. We need these things to start in the um, household of God and among the people of God. And if we're being who God has called us to be, we don't need to worry about the world. God will take care of that. And so this passage is going to give us some insight into that. And so what's happening, to give you context of, of this passage of Scripture, this book, Paul is writing writing to Titus, and Titus, has le- he's left him at the island of Crete to be uh, in charge of and providing leadership in the churches on the island of Crete. It's a defined area of, of space, and so um, he wants them to, there's already believers there. We know at Pentecost there were some believers in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, some that heard from the island of Crete of the, the declarations of God and, and that Jesus had died and buried, was buried and rose again and, and had put their faith in him. So, so undoubtedly there's some believers tracing back all the way to Acts chapter 2 that, uh, that were on this island. And so um, Christianity's spreading, but as it's spreading and churches are growing, there's also false teachers coming in and they're trying to take over leadership. And for their own selfish reasons, they're disrupting the faith of other people. And they're almost like um, teaching mercenaries. They come in with false teaching, and they try to change things and modify things, and, and they're, they're causing problems. And in fact, whole families are struggling, and some turning away from God because of the false teaching that had, that had snuck into the, uh, the churches there on the island of Crete. And so Paul gives Titus some instructions of how to deal with that. So he says, look, here's what I want you to do. First and foremost, you need to put in order what is lacking there. In other words, you need to set up some things that, that need to um, that, that will hopefully help keep the false teaching away and help people grow and help the church be what God intends for it to be healthy and, uh, and impactful in that community. And so he gives them some instructions on what a leader in the church is supposed to look like. Here's what he should be. He should be this, this, and he goes through a series of different things. And among those different descriptions, he gets into what his family is supposed to be like, how his character is supposed to be, his integrity. Among those is teaching and his doctrine. But, but even before that, he gets into his um, family, what his life looks like, and does he have integrity. So we spent about four weeks dealing with uh, reformation in the home. And what does it look like if his kids are supposed to be this way? How does a guy raise his family? And how does a family raise kids that look this way? And so we spent some time kind of really slowed down instead of just saying, hey, you ought to have godly kids. It's really important to be investing in your kids and then moving on. Kind of trying to give some formative, very um, helpful stuff that hopefully will will you'll be able to implement in your lives. And so now we're back in the book of Titus, and now we're dealing with a reformation in the church. What does it look like for the church to be what God intends for it to be, which is a healthy discipleship, flourishing, discipleship-minded uh, body of believers? That's the goal. So how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, if you look with me in chapter 1, verse 9, we're going to jump back into this passage. 
have it up here, and hopefully you have a Bible with you. Uh, I encourage you always to bring a Bible. It's one of the advantage of uh, knowing that we're going to be teaching through books. We'll actually you'll actually get to use it. So bring it with you. Verse nine. He must hold firm, being the leader, the pastors. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are the false teachers I mentioned to you that have snuck into the church. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in their faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's our passage this morning. So beginning with verse 9, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What is the importance of holding firm to the trustworthy word and being able to teach and to give instruction? Here's why this is a big deal. Uh, Looking at other generations of believers, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, there's a there's a unsettling pattern you see in communities of people. And I think we've experienced this. We've seen this certainly in the Western church, we've seen this in Europe. We're seeing this in America on a large degree. But there's there's kind of four steps that that happens or four generations of change. The first generation believes the gospel. The first generation believes the gospel. They believe it. They teach it. They celebrate it. They're excited about it. It's great. The next generation assumes the gospel. We, we stop explaining it. We stop, we stop talking about it as much because everybody kind of understands, let, let's move on to something else. Instead of it being the power of God unto salvation, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1, we stop proclaiming it because everybody kind of understands. We all know that. Let's move on to something else, more colorful, colorful and exciting. We'll talk about something. And so the first generation believes it. Second generation assumes it. Third generation forgets the gospel. Just forget about it all. They, what's that thing? I don't some people might remember it, but most people, they don't even remember it. The fourth generation denies the gospel. They deny the gospel. First generation believes it. Second generation um, assumes it and neglects it. The next generation forgets it. The last generation denies it wholeheartedly. And that's what's happening in our culture. You dig a little deeper below just the who's coming to church and who's not coming to church. You look at 80% of the population is not actively involved in any church in uh, Washington County area. What happens, 80% of the population not actively going to church. And so it doesn't mean that they necessarily don't believe, but obviously they're neglecting the gospel. They don't see the importance to be fellowshipping with other believers and being taught and challenged and, and it rearticulated again and again. And so pretty, pretty soon you get to the point where you don't even, it's not even a part of your life. Fastest growing segment of our population in our country are those who have no religious affiliation. No religious affiliation. They're not necessarily atheists, 
but they don't believe anything. They just don't really, they're not really, they just have some hodgepodge belief system and God's, you know, to work out and God's basically loving. I try to do good things and be nice and whatever. And they're just hoping it pans out, right? But they don't have any connection to any group and no understanding of the gospel. They have forgotten it. And it's just a slight step and they will have denied it by their lives. And that's what's going on with this group of people. They have perverted the gospel and they're denying it with their lives. And so we must hold firm to the word of God as taught to the word as taught so that we may be able or he may be able to give instructions and sound doctrine, also rebuke those who contradict it. So two roles in holding firm to the word of God. And understand this, this is something that you are to hold me and our leadership accountable that we are doing this. But this is something that is to be true of your life, too. Okay, my job and my goal and the goal of pastors as we lead the congregation is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And so we come together to be taught the word of God, to understand the word of God so that we can all more effectively teach it to our families and the community and the world and proclaim the gospel accurately to the lost world around us. So that's all of our jobs. Your job isn't just to do some marginal kind of Christian living and then come here on Sundays and check in and then go back to worldly secular living. Your job and my job is to live as missionaries every single day, living to proclaim and share in our lives and with our mouths the gospel that people, many multitudes of people will follow Jesus and will have the opportunity of being in heaven for eternity rather than hell for eternity. There's there's a, the consequence of us Hiding our light under a bushel is a big deal. And so it's really important that you get a foundation and you understand that we're supposed to hold firm to this, protect the gospel together. And so when we think of that, two, two aspects of that. The first one is a kind of a positive. The second one is kind of a negative aspect. The first one is building up. We do this by building up so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy teaching. This is you might have heard the word orthodoxy, orthodoxy. That sounds like a kind of a stale, yucky word, but orthodoxy is actually really great. Ortho is meaning to cut straight. Doxy is talking about the teaching, the doctrine. And so orthodoxy is, is right beliefs. But then there's another part of that. Not only do we need to have right beliefs, we also need to have correct orthopraxy. And orthopraxy is right behavior, actions, practice. Do our beliefs and our practices line up and are they right? Is our orthodoxy or orthopraxy, is it, is it what it needs to be? Do we have right beliefs and right teaching? Are we able to give instruction in sound, healthy, biblical teaching of the word of God, a, a healthy understanding of the gospel? But then the, the flip side of that is the rebuke part. Not only do they give instruction, they're instructing, they're building up, they're teaching, but they're also rebuking those who contradict it. Now, this is blasphemous in our culture in our relativistic multicultural and a lot of different beliefs out there synchronistic those beliefs have all been synchronized and brought together into these weird contradictory beliefs the world uh that we live in this thought of rebuking those who contradict it is clearly counter-cultural if you want to pick a fight you tell somebody that their belief is wrong you can share your belief but don't you say that it is exclusive truth, that you know the truth, because that will be very, very offensive to other people. 
So, so there's two problems with this charge by Paul. Who, who are you and I to think that we know what the truth is? That's one problem. And the second problem is, who are you and I to tell somebody that their belief is wrong? But yet he tells us to rebuke those who contradict the word of God. But understand this, his, he's referring to the implication of what he's talking about is he's talking to insiders, not outsiders. You know what the church is great at? We are great at talking about those people out there. People in the world, they do this and they do that and they're so bad and they're this and they're that. They're, you know what? Has it ever occurred to you that they're doing what is absolutely logical? If they don't have lives surrendered to Christ and surrendered the Lordship of Christ, why would they not live for self? Why would they not live lives that are deceived and contradictory why would they not do worldly things why would they not be involved in things that that would be ungodly and wrong biblically why would they submit themselves to what we're supposed to believe for that matter when most of us uh, often we're not even submitting ourselves to it right we have we might have good orthodoxy but sometimes we don't have good orthopraxy our beliefs are there but yeah we don't really necessarily back them up with our lives this is referenced to the implications are this is to insiders not outsiders Insiders, not outsiders. And so that's the first thing to think about. The focus is on the church, not the culture, not the community. Isn't it easy for us to judge those outside and ignore the problems within the the church? So Paul is telling Titus to instruct and rebuke those who confess to being followers of Jesus and Christians. Rebuke them. Deal with them. That's why we said this is a, a series called Reformation, the reformation of the church. Not we don't need revival outside. We need Revival inside. We need reformation inside the church. How do we ever help other people if we don't get our acts uh, straightened out? If we aren't correctly understanding and living by the gospel, Jesus becoming bigger in our lives, how are we going to ever help the world out there? And, and who are we to judge their issues and their views and whatever if, if we don't correctly understand ours? So we need to deal with our lives. And so imagine this. Imagine a group of people that love Jesus, that are growing with Jesus, that don't preach a moralism that, you know, you ought to do this and you ought to do that, and you want to, but, but are being changed by Jesus. He's changing them. They're following Jesus. They're being changed with Jesus and by Jesus, and they're on mission with Jesus. How awesome would it be to have an environment like that? What kind of impact would that group of people make on the world outside? I think it would be a tremendous impact. And so they are insiders, who he's referring to, not the outsiders. And then the, the second part of this is, this is foundation. Second implication is this is foundational to discipleship. The, the word there, when he says earlier to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke, when he says give instruction, this, this phrase is the word parakaleo. I know that's exciting to you, parakaleo, to know that word. But here's what the Holy Spirit is called often. He is, this, he is described as the comforter and the one who comes beside us. The Holy Spirit, one of the words in the Greek for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. Paraclete. Para means to come along. Kalete is, is called. So he, he calls us to himself. And to give instruction is one who, likewise, calls another person to himself. It's a picture of discipleship. It's a picture, of, uh, actually, of apprenticeship. And so I'm, I'm doing something, and my goal is to take my kids and other people that God has brought into my life and my family and, and people that have followed and confessed to Christ and invite them, call them along my side, and me to come beside them, call them over, and then teach them 
the word of God. They're able to look over my shoulder and observe the understanding of the word of God and how it's lived out in our lives. So again, it's, it's, it's of necessity that we do life together. We can't just show up and talk a talk and then go back and do our contradictory lives. But we live together. So when, I, my, when my life contradicts the gospel, you're able to graciously, nicely, hopefully, point that out to me and vice versa. We live in community. We're not afraid to have somebody point our sin out because we all know we are in desperate need of Christ and none of us have arrived. And so we are dependent on one another. We can call one another next to each other and and we can do life together. But younger believers are instructed and encouraged by older believers. There's always somebody in front of you and there's always somebody behind you. All of us need a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy in our lives. You understand that? Paul was pouring into Timothy's life. And so we need a Paul. We need somebody that's pouring into us, that's, that's, that's giving us a life that's a couple steps ahead of us that we can observe and we can, call, we can be called to come alongside them to observe their life so we can be challenged and grow and apprenticed, discipled by their life and their teaching, their understanding of the gospel. But then we also need a Barnabas who's beside us, people that just are an encouragement to us. The people, are they on the same level in encouragement? And then we also want to have Timothy's behind us. Somebody that's a little couple steps behind that we're able to instruct and encourage and help them grow. So are you looking for somebody to put in front of you that you can grow and be encouraged by their life and their testimony and their being a little more mature spiritual, a little further down the road? Are there other people that you're gaining encouragement from on a kind of a more equal level? And are there people behind you that you are trying to help build them up? Not lording over them in control, but helping build them up. The paraclete and the parakaleo is, is the team that works to bring discipleship. The Holy Spirit and then those that are giving instruction work together, okay? So the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, he's in you, he's helping you grow and mature, but then he also brings believers to come beside you to help you grow. And so you have this twofold um, process that's happening in, in every believer's life, should be happening, where there's internally the Holy Spirit's bringing about change and transformation, but externally, he's bringing other people in our lives to be an encouragement to help us along the way. Does that make sense? That's what it means to give instruction. That's why this is foundational to discipleship and to the reformation of church. We've got to get past having programs and lessons and teaching and seminars and this and that and whatever and and book Bible studies where you fill in blanks and, and forget those, push those aside and let's take the word of God and let's sit down together and let's read a little bit of the word of God and say, okay, well, how do we apply this to them? What, what, what do we do with this? I, I love listening to Francis Chan make this point, a, a different kind of context. And he was talking about how he was reading the Bible with some friends. And um, in this, they were talking about um, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And, he, you know, and what do you do with that? How do you make that practical? You know, why don't we uh, walk around this convenience store seven times and pray that it, the walls fall down. And, and, and then we'll go in and we'll steal the uh, Twinkies. Or something. I don't, you know, what? what, what what, how do you, so here's what he thought. He, they're studying the word again uh, together and they're reading through his passage and you're thinking, what are, some, what are some places that seem dangerous and impenetrable that we just think, if I go into, if I jump in, there's no way that we will see God do it. We got to stay away because those people are really scary and dangerous. He thought, you know, there's that community up on the hill up there. I'm, to be honest, I'm afraid to walk through that neighborhood. Are you guys afraid? Yeah, man. I what, what, what would it look like if maybe we just trusted God that we would prayer walk that name. What if we just went up the hill and we went up there and we just prayed 
and walk through that neighborhood and ask God to, to bring us to a person of peace or somebody we can maybe talk to about Jesus and encourage them. And Let's just trust God to protect us like he protected his children of old. And they'll go up there with the light of the gospel and let's look for an opportunity to talk to somebody about Christ. Okay, let's do it. All right. And so then they made the word of God practical. That's what the word of God is supposed to be doing in our lives. We have got to get over running to Lifeway to get the latest little Bible study to sit down in our little book circle, gain more information, and then go back to living our lives the same as we were before, just with more information. You understand? What if we had less Bible study and more Bible application? You know that the mark of of maturity in the New Testament was not the amount of information that you had, but how quick you obeyed the information you got. The most mature believers were the young believers, not the Pharisees that had the Bible memorized. They knew the whole, they had the first five books down in memory. They were not the mature ones. The spiritually mature ones were those that were infants spiritually. They didn't know a lot, but that what they did know, they had obeyed and applied to their lives. This is why in Luke chapter 8, I believe, is the parable of the soils one of the, one of the, I love that formatively. I love this passage of scripture because it talks about the four soils. Each one of them is a different group that the word of God has taught. They heard the word and they didn't apply it in their life. Except for the fourth soil, they heard the word, they clung to it, and it brought about a harvest of fruitfulness. And then he goes on, um, the next couple verses, talks about a lamp and, and making your lamp shine. And then he says, be careful how you hear, because those who have heard the word for them and applied it, more will be given. And those who have heard it and not done anything with it, even what they think they have will be taken away from them. That's the picture of Satan coming and stealing the seed. So the arrogant, prideful, Bible-thumping, carrying whatever people in our community that are all about studying the Bible and they never apply it in their families, in their community, in their lives, what they think they have will be ripped away from them. Do you understand that? How critical is it for us to get past our pride and our arrogance to have all the right and to understand and experience and feast upon the word of God and simply apply it in our lives every day? That's it. That's it. Just apply the word of God. Be feasting on it regularly, digesting it and applying it, looking for, for ways. God, how do and, and it creates an ongoing conversation with God? How do I apply this, Lord? Or how should I do this? Or what, what way do you want to encourage me or challenge me or rebuke me or whatever? And we're feasting upon the word. We have other people coming beside us. They're a little bit behind us, some a little bit ahead of us. When the community of Christ is moving forward, and this is the foundation of discipleship. This is what it looks like. That's just verse nine. All right, so. The rest will move faster. So for their, why is this so critical? Because you know what? There's some people that have snuck into the church. And I'm going to tell you, they're in the church in America. They're in the church in the South. They're in the church in Washington County, um, in the East Tennessee area. They're in, in all kinds of churches. Jesus said that the devil will come and he will sow tares among the wheat. And so in every congregation, there is wheat, but there is also tares. And the danger is you don't really know which one's which, except by this grid that he's going to give us. So here's some instructions and some insight he gives us into the nature of these false teachers, the nature of the false teachers. They're unwilling to be under authority. It says that for they are, there are many who are insubordinate, insubordinate. They're unwilling to be under authority. By the way, this is 
the first descriptor of the preacher, uh, somebody qualified to be the pastor, elder, bishop, leader in a church, are his kids subordinate or are they insubordinate? And this person is like the guy who's disqualified from leading a church because he, the, these people are, with their very lives, are insubordinate. They're unwilling to place themselves under the authority of the leadership of the church and of other believers. They're insubordinate. Secondly, they're deceiving others with their nonsense. They're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, Our littlest one, um, Caroline, is two years old, and she's kind of getting in the bubbles. They're pretty awesome. And so I thought I'd bring some bubbles for you so you can appreciate it. Let's see if I can get this going right. Look how beautiful that is. I mean, it's just a beautiful, a shiny, it's almost like wizardry, okay? To be able to just breathe, and then there's this perfect formed circle. Sometimes they have some little circles off of it. And it's shiny and colorful and, and beautiful. I mean, that it's amazing. But then when you try to grab them, when you grab them, there's nothing left. And that's what a false teacher produces in our lives. I mean, the things that they say, it seems so awesome and insightful. They have a new revelation from God. They said, you know, the Holy Spirit just told them, the Bible just said, they, God spoke to them and he gave them this new insight. They're preaching this thing and they have this spin on whatever and it's so insightful and interesting and, and wow, it's just amazing. I'm going to look at that. But then when you go and you grab it, there's nothing really there. There's no substance to it. They're empty talkers. Be careful. When people say they got some new spin or some new understanding or some new whatever, it's a temptation. I'll be honest. Preaching and teaching the word every week. It is a temptation to want to, uh, you know, I don't want to say the same thing. I want to have some fresh, I want to be able to, to be able to teach something that is, people are going to, wow, that is really awesome. That's amazing. But you know what the reality is? I just need to rely upon God's word, expose what's there rather than create my own truths. You know how many books and sermons and false doctrines that have been spun out of the first couple verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thing was formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. You have the God created everything, and then he gets into the days of creation. And that little gap between the summary of God made everything. Here's how he did it in seven days. And then more detail about here's how he did it with man. Those gaps between, rather than it being ginormous picture, a little more specific, a little more specific, people have written all kinds of different crazy thoughts into the gap between. It's called gap theory. What's gone on in that? Be careful when you have preachers preaching from the blank spaces in the Bible. I tell you, it's really awesome. I mean, what I think was there's probably these giants and this happened and, and Satan probably God maybe had this creation and then he destroyed it and then he made a new creation and he did this and he did that. And it's really incredible because it helps us understand blah, 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 blah. and they have all this stuff and, and people are just like, I never knew that. Did you see that bubble? Awesome. Really cool. Wow. Wish I could understand the word and teach it like that. That's another thing. Be careful. When you come away from preaching and teaching in a Bible study or a book or whatever, and you're like, man, I wish I knew the word like they knew the word. I hope, I hope I don't come across that way. I hope that as I teach and preach the word, whoever's teaching to preach the word from cross life, I hope that we do not come across as like we have this other upper echelon of knowledge and whatever. The only thing 
I might have that you, most of you might not have, is I've done a little more schooling. I have a couple more tools as far as language resources and some of those things that I might be. But you know what? I could teach you how to use those resources and to get those things. It's not an issue of me having some secret knowledge and you don't have it. I'm up here. You're down here. You've got to trust me. Come here every week because I've got the secret knowledge and you don't have the secret knowledge. I am great and you are small. That's not what's going on here. I'm as needy as you are. We are coming to feast upon the word of God. I need God desperately to tell me something so I can share from his word what he says to me and to our congregation on a weekly basis. I need God to come through and teach from his word. I don't need some new bubble that will impress people. Because in the end, there's nothing there. It's Ecclesiastes chapter one. Vanity, oh, vanity. Vanity of vanities. But to think that we have secret knowledge and wisdom and whatever, no. The nature of these false teachers is they are unwilling to be under authority. Their people in church plants, new churches, attract them. Unfortunately, by God's grace, we have not had many, but we have had some that come in that are unwilling to submit themselves to authority. Unwilling to place themselves under other people's teaching. They have some superior outside knowledge and i'm really suspect of preachers and i don't know what i really think about that and i don't think you know church leadership and government it's all man-made it's all this it's all that and catholic church changed this and they they messed this up and there's all these traditions and this stuff and they, they have all these crazy theories about what possibly happened which clearly they're borrowing bits of information from other people you know saying well that the reference to catholic church like da vinci code stuff and they get they see a movie and they think that that's like authoritative rather than hollywood spin on whatever and, and they pull this information and then they kind of spit out, well, this is what I think and whatever. And they were unwilling to submit themselves to authority. And they run around from house to house in life groups and other places kind of giving their slant on this and their slant on that and what they really think and what they really, with this kind of arrogant, I have secret knowledge and you don't have it. That is a flag when you see that. And so what do you do with that kind of person? Here's what he says. He says, it is too dangerous to let them continue to go around and, and devour the body of Christ. And so they're unwilling to be under authority. They're deceiving others with their nonsense. First of all, how do you know them? Look at the emptiness of what they're teaching. They're seducing and deceiving the minds and thinking of other people. Anytime, and he calls these group, this group the, the, of the circumcision party. So here's what we know of that. They're Jewish converts. They're, they're, they're living on the island of Crete. They're Jewish supposed followers of Jesus, but they have brought part of the law not circumcision. In their case, it's dietary, evidently. Certain things you should eat, certain things you shouldn't eat. Godly people don't eat these things. If you're really spiritual, you have Jesus plus the right diet. And if you don't have the right diet rituals and our secret knowledge, then you are clearly not really as mature as we are. And you're not as godly as we are. You're not as... And so they begin to lift them. They create a whole list that makes them and elevates them above other people rather than, as Jesus said, getting on their knees and washing the feet of people around them, which is what true leadership is. They have this arrogance about them, this false teaching, and so they are deceiving other people. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus the list is a false gospel. And so verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Again, their actions, they're teaching for shameful gain. That doesn't necessarily mean they're trying to make money, although it could be that, but the bottom line is they are self-serving in what they teach. They become great, you become small. And Jesus becomes irrelevant in their teachings. And so they're, they have, they're self-serving, trying to gain authority, trying to gain um, significance, trying to gain power in the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, it says this, 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, their teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has unhealthy cravings for controversy or for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain, means to puff themselves up, a means to gain financially, a means to gain whatever, avoid those people. So we we understand that they're trying, they're they're self-seeking, their lives are contradicting that which they talk about in the true gospel. Verse 12, he says, one of these Cretans, a prophet of their own said, and his name is uh, Epimenides, lived about 600 B.C. Most people believe this is the guy he's talking about. Um, he said that the island's absence of wild animals, that on, on the island of Crete, evidently there weren't a lot of wild animals. And he said the absence of the wild animals was because it was filled by its human inhabitants. He's saying, in other words, Crete doesn't need wild animals. We got the people here. They fill that blank. Okay, that's what he said. And so, um, in fact, another thing, uh, a phrase was to play the Cretan, was a phrase used back then, was to say, it was meant to be a liar. You played the Cretan. Oh, you're just playing the Cretan. In other words, you're deceiving and you're a liar. That's what the thought was. And so that is seen when, but by him saying, one of your own prophets, he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So again, he's talking about the false Jewish, supposed Christian, Cretan, false teacher. And he's saying, look, they preach these new revelations, new ideas, new thoughts, shiny bubbles. They talk about all that stuff. There's no substance there, and their lives contradict it because they are liars. And they are, get this, they're not just gluttonous. They're lazy gluttons. Even worse than being a glutton is a lazy glutton. Even worse than being lazy is being a glutton. Put those two together, and they're really bad. They are animals. They are lazy gluttons. Liars. Evil beasts. So how do we deal with them? First, we silence them. Verse 11 says you are to, they must be silenced, which literally means to put a gag in their mouth. Stop the pain. Okay, just go ahead and close them down. Take away their opportunity to deceive other people by shutting them down verbally. Don't let them talk. Silence them, muzzle them, whatever. Silence them. Number two, rebuke them. And this means, um, therefore, rebuke them sharply. This means to surgically remove the lies like with a with a knife okay you're surgically cutting out the lies with the truth the the knife of the word of god with the hopes that once you remove the false teaching the cancer that the patient or i'm sorry that the, the false teacher and those being influenced by the false teacher will both be healthier you can't let these things go undealt with we have to deal with them but with the truth and the word of god cut it out so that you can maybe save the false teacher and keep others from being infected by the disease that is coming out of their mouth. And then here, let me finish with this last couple verses that are kind of confusing. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, that they, both the hearers and the false teachers, may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. But then he says, to the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. What is he, what is he talking about uh, here? here? Jesus spoke to this, and this is, this is easily misunderstood. Let me give you some implications of this. 
what, what does this mean? What does it not mean? Really, the two main thoughts here. What does this not mean? To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled, all things are defiled. He, what he is not saying is, you know what? Now that you're a Christian and you're pure, you can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter. You can do even immoral, wrong, bad things, but because of the blood of Jesus, it covers you, and it doesn't matter. Now, because you're pure, anything you choose to do is pure. That is not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He is challenging the thought of what makes somebody pure and what makes somebody defiled because these people were teaching that what you ate and you didn't eat is what made you spiritual or unspiritual. If you ate the choice things, the right things, you had the the diet that they prescribed, the actions that they prescribed, the spirituality that they prescribed, the list. If you did their list, you were pure. So the list makes people pure, what they taught. He's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Let me give you Jesus' version of this. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus said, He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the man, this defiles a person. Do not, verse 17, do not see, uh, do you not see that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person, but to eat that what uh, with unwashed hands does not defile a person. You might get stomach bug, but it's not going to condemn your soul to hell. All right? And that's what he's trying to teach them. And so First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, another way Paul says this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially uh, members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This concept of denying the faith, being worse than, worse than an unbeliever, is where he lands this passage. Verse 16. Let me refer to 15 and 16 um, again. To the... In other words, to those who have been spiritually cleansed by the gospel, by Jesus, all things ritually are pure. Eat what you want. doesn't really matter. You can choose not to eat certain things. That's fine. But don't think that your righteousness is based upon what you eat or what you do not eat. doesn't matter. So all things are pure. But to the defiled, to the spiritually morally defiled sinful person who lives by the list, Whatever their list is, it doesn't really matter because nothing is pure. They can have the most pristine religious diet actions, follow the law to a T. It doesn't matter. Everything they do is condemns them more and more and more. They're not going to be pure by their actions. They, uh, because both their minds, their thinking, mind, soul, thoughts, opinions, and their consciences, their moral compass are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, they are disqualified for any good work. Hence, 1 Timothy 5, which I read to you, this is like a person who has denied the faith. They're worse than an unbeliever, this kind of person. What makes us righteous? Well, the greatest weapon against Satan's lies and deceit is the truth. The truth of the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So if truth brings freedom, what do lies bring? Bondage, captivity, deception. 
Okay, and so these are people that are being affected by lies, and he's challenging them to go back to the truth, hold firm to the truth of the word of God. Take those who are teaching false truths and rebuke them, silence them, and try to restore them because they are upsetting whole households and hurting other people. And the best way to deal with bondage and lies is with the truth. So the truth sets people free. The greatest danger in Christianity in Jesus' kingdom is people who profess to know Jesus with their mouths and yet deny him with their actions. Because though they confess to know the truth, their lives contradict that. And that is the greatest threat. It's not ISIS. It's not the political system. It's not the culture. Those are not the threats to Christianity. They can hurt people. They can wound people. The biggest threat is a distortion of the gospel by people who profess to know it, but yet contradict it with their lives. They are just like these false teachers. The greatest threat is not outside persecution. Claim right doctrine, um, have right doctrine and belief. They claim to have right doctrine and belief, but they produce no fruit. These are what's called practical atheists. You say, well, I think atheism is the biggest danger. No, the biggest danger are those that say they believe God, but practically they function as, as if God's not necessary in their everyday life. That, God neglect, is the greatest sin of the church. God neglect. Is he the center of your life? Is he the center of, do you have a right understanding of the gospel that produces um, and is evidenced by right actions? That's the last thought. Right belief that is evidenced by right actions. Right belief evident in right actions. Actions of humility, of surrenderedness to the gospel. Of people that are loving other folks and growing in Christ and, and following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, on mission with Jesus. Not arrogant people that have some secret knowledge or whatever that lord it over other people or people that confess something on Sunday but live contradictory lives throughout the week. Are our lives, are they, are they measuring up to that which we confess in those two things? That is the greatest threat, is practical atheism and God neglect in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who would love your word, would devour your word, would understand your word, would teach your word, would digest your word, would pass on your word, that we would call, we would look for those who we could come beside to learn and grow more in the things of God. And then we would call others, God, that we would be a machine, um, a, a healthy organism of discipleship that's just happening, not because it's programmed, but because we have a group of people desperately wanting to grow in their Christ-likeness and, and uh, be more like Jesus, but then call other people to help them mature and grow. Not to pridefully be over and have power and have authority in other people's lives, but to humbly come to wash feet, to lay our lives down so other people can step on top of us and get higher and closer to Christ. Father, help us to be like our King. Those who lay our lives down for others. God, give us wisdom and discernment when false teachers sneak into the church. May we see them, spot them graciously, lovingly, but firmly point out the false teaching, recognize the false teaching, and dismiss it. God, that, that we would protect the body of Christ here cross life from denying the gospel. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you've got to pray that they would repent and trust in Jesus this morning. They would um, come talk to me or somebody at the end of the service in this time of, of reflection and of decision. And God, for those of us that know you, God, may we be called back 
to a life of God dependence rather than God neglect. God, whatever areas that we are functioning today as practical atheists, God, may we repent of those things. And may we not just have right thinking, but right actions for your glory and to testify of your grace. In Jesus' name, we give and pray. Amen. Thank you.